Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 157 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. There is always a special delight I feel when I'm interviewing literary agents. After all, who wouldn't want to talk to an agent? And my guest in this episode is not only a literary agent, she also used to be a stand-up comedian. And so she's not only very knowledgeable about the publishing industry, she's also great fun to talk to and it was a joy to speak with her. And she has just written a very insightful book for aspiring authors called Appropriately Enough, Funny You Should Ask. And we get to talk about that book in our conversation. So the main part of this episode is given over to my conversation with literary agent Barbara Powell from the Irene Goodman Literary Agency. But before we get into that conversation, there are a couple of things I wanted to say. First of all, I'm really pleased to see that quite a number of people have been reading my first contact novel, The Centauri Survivors, which was published last year. And it has now gathered a fair few ratings on Goodreads. And I'm especially pleased to see that a lot of them are five star reviews. So I'm really pleased that people are enjoying the book. If you have read it and you haven't reviewed it yet, I'd be very grateful if you could on Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you put reviews. If you haven't read it and you're interested to find out more, it's available on Amazon in paperback and ebook. Second thing, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm going to be putting the Creative Writers Toolbook podcast on hiatus at the end of March. So there will be two more episodes after this one, the final one being me rounding off the podcast. So the existing episodes will still be available and I may come back at some point in the future and do some more. But I feel as if I've done what I intended to do with the podcast for now. So thank you for listening. If the podcast has helped you with your writing, then I consider I have achieved what I set out to do and I am very content. So back to this episode, and I had an informative and fun-packed conversation with literary agent Barbara Powell. We talked about the importance of having good critique partners, how to approach an agent at a conference, and that old favourite, showing not telling. And I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed the conversation. Here it is. Great. Okay. Barbara, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. It's great to have you with us this evening. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So first of all, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and particularly what were the cultural influences on you when you were growing up? I love that question. Absolutely. Um, Well, I grew up in the middle of America in a state called Minnesota. And in that culturally, we're Polish, Polish Irish. And the women in my family are voracious readers, voracious. So it's very (laughs) rare to be at a holiday or at any kind of event where someone isn't either holding up a book they're reading, talking about a book they're reading or exchanging. And this was always my experience from a very young age. And so books played a huge role in my my childhood. And I made a very quick jump very early on from reading chapter books to Stephen King and horror, because back in my day, there wasn't a lot of young adult that we see on the shelves today. Um, So I made a very quick jump from uh, reading Trixie Belden <laughs> to Stephen King. <laughs> okay, that, that is a bit of a leap, but I, I, I guess when you're when you're a kid, you make those leaps, don't you? You, yeah, you kind absolutely. of you whatever you can reach on the bookshelf is what you is what you might have a go at. So, could you tell us briefly what else you did with your life before you became a literary agent? 
Absolutely. Well, as we all do in our 20s, I made all the right mistakes to try to figure out what I wanted to do in my 30s. But in <laughs> my um, in my 20s, I have a secret history as a film and television actress. Shh, don't tell anyone. And I was also doing quite a bit of comedy, stand-up, sketch, and improv comedy. My husband at the time, we were, we're still married. He's still my husband at this time. Uh, I was just starting to feel a little burned out on the acting scene and on the comedy scene. And he yeah. was the one that said, I mean, I have always seen you as a perfect personality for a literary agent. And I literally looked at him and said, what's that? <laughs> so <laughs> it, it was through the loving eyes of my spouse that I started to look into what a literary agent does. And okay. I went on international interviews and fairly quickly figured out my skill set is absolutely in the wheelhouse of being a literary agent. Cool. So, in fact, it was your husband that first suggested yes, the job that you're was. in now. Yes, it was. <laughs> yes. Long time ago. I've been in it 13 years now. So, 13 yeah. years. Now, I'm intrigued by the fact that you were a comic and you were doing stand-up, mm-hmm. which, and in a sense, it doesn't surprise me that you're saying maybe you were feeling a little bit burnt out because right. performance art of any kind is really demanding. For me, it was, I was living in Los Angeles at the time. So in Los Angeles, the scene, and also being a woman, you know, it's what, 15 years ago, being a woman in the comic scene too was in Los Angeles was an interesting time. I would say that, (laughs) I would say that any time as artists, you all know what I'm talking about, where you are just putting yourself out there so much. And then you have that pause of saying, am I still getting the buzz that I wanted when I started this? And so for me, it was more of a shift into facilitating the art. And that's where I'm just like, that's why when I wrote the book too, it's a love letter to the industry and a love letter to artists, as well as a calling card for the business itself. I I wondered if there was anything at all, maybe one or two things that you've learned for what you do now, specifically Mm -hmm. from when you were doing comedy and when you were doing stand-up. Yeah, I think it's a life lesson as well as a publishing lesson, but it's staying present um, staying really, really present, especially when you're on stage and you're going down a certain track of humor and it's not hitting with the audience and you can feel the energy shift getting in front of that and bringing them back to the table, so to speak, with you. I would also say working in humor has oftentimes given me the ability to make a joke at the right moment to diffuse a situation. And yeah. so I think that has also yeah. been very, very helpful. And yeah. I, I like to have fun. I mean, I just like to have fun and I can be very serious, driven and ferocious. But everybody knows that at the end of the day, you're going to have a good time working with me, no matter what side of the table we're sitting on. Yeah. And those those things are not mutually exclusive, are they, I guess, in no, that you can yeah. have fun and, and, and be funny and be serious. You mentioned your book there. And one of the other things that I was going to mention was that we writers are always keen uh, to hear about what's happening in, in book publishing and from within publishing world. And you operate in that world as, as a literary agent. So, And you've been able to give us an insider's view with your book, Funny You Should Ask, which for me reading it, it was it made perfect sense that you were into comedy and you did stand up because the whole of your book is written in a spirit of fun and a spirit oh, of, of laughter, isn't it? I think. And I noticed even from even in the introduction of that book, you're telling a funny story to us, the reader, which made me just think, I wonder what what should writers remember when they are trying to be funny? Because Comedic writing is incredibly difficult. I think. It really is, yeah. So what I did want to ask you about, just reading your book, it's a funny book. There's a funny mm-hmm. story that you tell even in the introduction, and it just made me think about how hard, in fact, it is to be funny in writing. And I wondered if you had one or two things to say to writers about being funny in writing successfully. Oh, I love this question. And yes, and sometimes I think 
the common mistake if you're going to be funny in your novel or you're funny in your book. I think the common mistake is to then show an agent in your query letter or in your approach, look at how funny I am when really you let your book do the speaking for you. Yeah. That. Yeah. But, you know, funny is very, it's like being musical is like being funny. I don't play any instruments, but I do, I can, I do sing. There is a rhythm to comedy that is intrinsic. It can yes. be learned to a certain degree, but it also, there has to be kind of a natural understanding. Again, we talk a little bit about the push and pull of the room. You kind of read the room. And the same thing goes for being funny in a novel or funny in a memoir. It is, you're reading the room and you can kind of tell what's working. I find reading yeah. things out loud can really expose the the cadence and the pacing of humor. And so sometimes I'll be cracking up reading a book and then sometimes I won't be. So I find reading it out loud, you can tell what's going on. And I did that mm. for my own book. I would read the responses out loud and all of a sudden you could hear, well, that's, that word's not the right word there. What about this word? And trying something out. But I would highly recommend reading things out loud to get the, the mm. rhythm and the cadence of mm. humor. It's interesting, isn't it? I, the genuinely funny thing does not call itself funny, does it? It doesn't draw attention right. to itself as a funny thing. It, it is self-evident that it's funny. And timing, I suppose, and rhythm, as you say, are, are yeah. critical. So the, one of the other things that you really do stress in your book is the importance of writers finding a writing group and, and or critique partners. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that. Why why is it so important? And who? Sh what kind of people should we be looking for in finding a writing group or critique partners? Yeah, I think it's the single most important tool in a writer's toolbox is the, the critique partner or the writing group. First and foremost, my favorite piece of advice is you should feel like everyone in the writer group or your critique partner is better than you. You should not secretly think that you're the <laughs> best one in that group. You should be immersing yourself in a group of people that you think, oh man, these people are better than me. I think that's the number one important thing, knowing that they're probably thinking the same thing about you, but this works. I would also say a critique partner that isn't, to coin a phrase from the 90s, maybe a frenemy where somebody who <laughs> is patting you on the back, but really you can't see the tiny dagger enclosed in her fist. Um, I want to make sure that you are being honest and being partners in every sense of the word. There's perhaps a kind of a sense of authenticity that is required. Oh, in that. You don't want people being nasty for the sake of it. And you don't want people just sort of saying sweet things to you for the sake of it. No, neither of those are helpful. But. Yeah. Authenticity and people who are genuinely interested in your writing and interested in having you talk about their writing, you know, authenticity. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that I noticed, which was, which for me is really fascinating because I'm interested in this kind of stuff is that basically you're implying, I think that pretty much since the beginning of storytelling, since the cave people kind of gathered around a fire and told stuff to each other, that basically they've been telling the same story. We have all been telling each other the same story for millennia. Can you tell us what that story is and <laughs> how we, uh, it's a terrible question, but bear with me. <laughs> you can just say that's a bad, terrible question. <laughs> no, I kind of love it. I kind of love it because it, it, there is the same story. And I, you know, I, I make a couple of references in the book about it, but the yes. story is basically everything's okay. Something bad happens. Everything's okay, but we're all changed from it. Like that's basically the story, right? Like okay. it, the, I feel like all stories should begin the moment before the ordinary becomes extraordinary. So you're, the story happens, everything is relatively okay. Then there's a catalytic event. And then by the end of it, we're okay, but in a different way. Yes. And in fact, not only is it a horrible question, but it's got two parts to it. In, and the <laughs> second part, which I will now mug you with is mm -hmm. given that 
we are telling each other broadly the same story or in a fundamental way the same story. What is it that we do as writers which makes something interesting or intriguing or enticing or fascinating with that story, which has been told for thousands of years, to then bring new readers in and, and to tell it as if it were new? Right. And I think it all comes from the lens that we write from. When you are reading a story about uh, a young boy in Afghanistan, you are somehow relating to that young boy's journey. Mm. So there mm. is always the idea of relatability in humanity within your characters. Mm. You can even have a vicious antagonist that is somehow still empathetic because of some part of humanity that we recognize in ourselves reflected in that character. So I would say the common denominator is the uncommon denominator, how we each individually view the world through a lens, but also beneath all that is our common humanity. Hmm. Now, I just want to come back to an answer that you gave me yeah. just now as well, actually, because this podcast, when I'd been running it for a while, I took all the best advice and insight that I'd got over lots and lots of episodes and produced a book. And one of the things I talked about in that book was what I called just-in-time storytelling. Okay. which meant that there was a real art to starting your story just in time before stuff happens. Yeah, that's it. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could just expand, and I think you alluded to that earlier on, I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit. I, uh, I just signed something recently where the first three chapters, when I called him to sign, to offer representation, the one thing I said to him was, uh, the first three chapters were written for you, not for the reader. So we're going to lock those off. And he was like, what? And then he admitted <laughs> he admitted that people in his critique group had also said similar things, that yeah. it takes too long yeah. to tell the story. But he needed to write these three chapters to get where his character was coming from. Yes. But when we started where yeah. we started, then you still got all of that, but we didn't need to read through the the patchwork to get there. Yes, um, yes. And I mean, you can start any story I mean, the moment before, like I said, the moment before the ordinary becomes extraordinary. To me, the closest you can call that is probably Andy Weir's The Martian. The first line of that book is as close as you can possibly come to starting, <laughs> sorry, the moment before it becomes extraordinary. And then you also have something like um, Lee Child's first book, Killing Floor. That's another one where the first line, I believe, is they arrested me in Joe's Cafe. Some Something like that. Sorry, Lee. Yes. Uh, yes. Something like that. But again... That is the moment where we're we're jumping right into the extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but that those kind of points, I would say, are the farthest right side points. But then you can also have a longer tail. But definitely by the end of the first chapter, we should at least be dangling our toe in what's about to be the extraordinary. Yes. Yeah. And I'm I am drawing comfort from the fact that you mentioned briefly there that that this preamble, if you like, what we write as writers for ourselves is yeah. not wasted in a sense. No, absolutely um, not. Yeah, that's good. I mean, uh, very briefly, uh, my story is published a book last year. Um, it started with what in the original manuscript was chapter five, and there was 12,000 mm. words I just had to get rid of, just just had to go. Oh, was that um, painful? Uh, I I felt sorry for myself for a yes. period of time. Yes, I bet. Um, Especially, you know, the first wrote the first chapter, and I was in love with that first chapter. I spent two hours writing the first line. Oh, you've heard it all before, and it's nothing not that it's special to me. I think anybody listening to this, fellow writers, you've been there or you will be there. Um, we know deep down that it's got to go. That stuff, 
you know, the yeah. kill your darling. You guys always know. You always know. You, every time I say it, it's like, who do you think you're fooling? Because certainly not me <laughs> and certainly not yourself. Like, you, nobody is ever shocked. Uh, tell it. Tell us how it is, Barbara, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, and it's true. And, and But I think it is encouraging anybody who's listening, to, who is in that position, it's encouraging to hear what you as a professional Barbara have just said, which is that actually it's okay to have written that piece because it helps. I think it's incredibly important. I don't think the character that my client, Josh, I don't think the character that he created on for, you know, page one of chapter four would have happened unless he had written all that out. And yes. he gave us a fully formed character with which to start the novel with by chapter. It just happened to be chapter four. Yeah. So yep. Lopped him off and away we went. Great. It's, uh, it's tough, but we thank you for it in the end, don't we? <laughs> so moving on from that, when a manuscript that you receive is mm-hmm. really bad, like mm-hmm. really bad, what's wrong with it? Usually what's wrong with it? It's a pretty nuanced question. So let's, let's unpack uh, getting a sure. manuscript. So generally speaking, when I get a query, it'll be a query in the first 10 pages of the manuscript. Okay. So uh, sometimes absolutely it happens where I'm like, oh, this is a great query, a good hook understands the comp titles, understands uh, the genre and where they fit on the shelf. First 10, first line's great. First page is keeping me reading first 10 pages. When I get to it and I'm like, I click and there's still, there's nothing left to read. I'm like, oh, that feeling. And I know for sure to request it. And then sometimes I can hang in there for like another two or three chapters. And then it just starts falling apart and threads become unraveled. And what usually is happening is that so much time has been spent on those first three chapters. And then the, the author is like, okay, I'm going to power through the book. I'm going to get it done. And so maybe, you know, it took them a year to write the first three chapters and then power (laughs) through the novel. And then you go back and it's not cohesive. And we're missing a B storyline and the pacing is off. And we fall right into the trap of the narrative telling and not showing. I want to watch characters making decisions that make a plot happen. I don't want a plot to happen informing how the characters walk, talk, and move. Yeah. Okay. Um, And... just to just to change that question slightly, mm-hmm. so when a when a query you get or when the first two or three pages say are really bad, mm-hmm. just briefly, what what normally is wrong with stuff like that? It's craft. It's all craft. Um, it's like mm. anything else. You can you know hand someone a violin and say walk out on stage and play it, but it's not possible. So you can tell when yeah. someone has has not honed their craft um, and has not taken the time and effort to do so. Yeah. But sometimes yeah, yeah. it's it's it can just be again it seems to come down to the telling and showing the idea of the skill set of weaving a story of pulling someone in of dropping that fish hook in the water and hooking us and just never letting us go yeah and again that's learned but it's also can be an intrinsic talent but it is learned and it takes discipline okay now this is a more difficult question i don't know whether there's an answer to it maybe it's not a difficult i don't know i'll I'll toss it out there we'll see how we get Mm -hmm. on so if you think back to manuscripts that you've seen and you have been that close to taking that person on Mm -hmm. really you know it's a fine judgment but you don't you decide not to Mm -hmm. what's what's normally going on with those sorts of work with that sort of work I love this question because I wrestle with it all the time and Mm. then I don't wrestle with it at all because maybe equals no if I'm not on my feet by the last page screaming, I have to call this person. I don't care that it's 3 a.m. Eastern. Like I'm calling them. Like <laughs> I I have to have this person. I have to be a part of facilitating their art, no matter the genre, whether it's, you know, a nonfiction coming of age sure, story, whether it's a sure. picture book, whether whatever it is where I'm just like, I have to be a part of facilitating this journey. I I want to be a part of handing this person their, their stage mm. and their audience. 
Yeah. So for me, if I'm not having that feeling, you don't want me as your agent because it, it sure. can take a while. It can be your first book or your fifth book that I sell. It can be, you know, your first two books sell well, and then we're back in the trenches for a couple of years until we find another yeah. you know, breakout to write. Yeah. So you want my blood, sweat, and tears on every page alongside of you. You don't want me to look at your manuscript and think, I bet I can make money off this. I bet you there's, I bet you there's something to be done here. That's not what you want. You want me clawing at the other side of your door saying, I must have you. And so yeah. if I'm not doing that, then there's, there's really no reason for you to want me. And to be fair, if people read this book, they will see direct references to this, I think, all the way through. But I, mean, I think there's one point in the book where you repeat the question, do I love it? Do I love it? Do I love it? About yeah. a manuscript, like mm-hmm. several eight times or something. Yeah. And it's like, do you get a sense of whether that is how a lot of your colleagues in the, the world of literary agency work as well? Is it the kind of, it's all, you know, it's, if it hits you in the gut, then, then that's what's needed. I love that question. And I also think there are a lot of agents and clients who fit with these agents who say, read it and say, I totally, I can see what you're doing with this. I can get you six figures from Platinum. Let's do this. And that's how they approach the business. And that's how that writer wants to be approached. And that, I mean, it's, it's an interesting relationship, the agent and editor, or excuse me, agent and client relationship. Yes. It's fascinating. Um, And I think there are some people that operate in that way. I'm just, I happen to be built a little bit differently. And also there is, I, one of the questions that you're referring to back in the book is I also have been approached with projects that are clear money makers, but the subject matter or the execution of it makes me uncomfortable or that I feel that there's maybe some gratuitous violence in it or something okay. that yes. personally doesn't work with me. Yeah, sure. Um, then I will pass on it and I'm happy to do so. And I've seen those projects go on to sell and sell well, but I can sleep at night because I, mm. those aren't the books for me. Sure. And that's, I mean, I guess that's, that's completely understandable and what one would expect, isn't it, really? If it, if it just doesn't make you feel comfortable, then you don't yeah, want to know. Absolutely. Do you know? Um, now, there is a point in your book when you start talking about the big stuff, uh, like sex and death, stuff yeah. like that. And you say, and I'm quoting here, the important factor is how relatable the motivations of the characters are. Now, I wondered if you could expand on that. What what do you mean by that? And perhaps maybe if if you've got an example, you could give us of that in in you know in action. Yeah, I think it goes back to again the relatability, uh, the relatability factor. If you're reading a novel and one character just all of a sudden walks into a bedroom and the other character walks in and they have sex, you're like, okay, well that's interesting or, or whatever needed to happen for the plot. But the big stuff, the sex and death stuff, it, it the motivations of the character are what keep us connected to the narrator are what keeps us and the narrative and what keeps us saying, what would I do this? And, and, and the voyeuristic attitude of it, of, of the violence, um, would I do this? And w- in what circumstance mm. would I do this? And all we have as readers is it's an amazing Thing. It's like time travel. The author wrote the book, you know, 18 <laughs> months ago, and you're and they're telling you a story now that you're the reader isn't reading for 18 months or two years from now or sometimes 10 years from now. But motive character motivations shouldn't change in 10 years, like greed and lust and envy and death, yeah, and, yeah. Um, fear. I mean, these are things that are basic components of our human DNA. And so when we're talking about the big stuff or even the little stuff the relatable motivations based on our humanity and based on reflections of ourselves and humanity are going to be the key factor in keeping those pages turning. So in that case, is it fair to say that just as the stories don't change over time, Mm 
mm-hmm. that human motivation doesn't really change over time or the range of motivations that, that I, think that's a great, I, I think that's a great question i want to mold on that a little bit i think sure. in the end you know we're mammals we want to survive but our humanity also keeps us grounded and looking to the right and to the left and making sure the people to the right and the left are also surviving i hope as we advance forward um mm. but yeah i think i think that what keeps us grounded is more is our similarities than our differences although our differences are so important to explore and as a as the a reader um do i do i care more about what makes people do crazy things or what makes people be grounded or do i do i want to read both yeah i mean that's a great question i mean i think we all want to read both right we like to stories are told so that we can escape our own for a minute and i think yes, and then but yeah. we see ourselves reflected in it yes um, and so yeah i think both and the other thing that I'm, I'm concluding from what you're saying here is it, it sounds as if dramatic things that are acted out like violence or passionate sex or, I don't know, somebody drinking water and they haven't drunk for three days or whatever, things which are purely the action of it is not that interesting in and of itself. It is the context and motivations and, and the understanding of characters when they come to do these things that matters. Correct. Yeah. Um, character is key. Character and pacing, I would say, are your two main components of any okay. solid novel. And that doesn't necessarily mean breakneck pacing, but a pacing that, again, I'm going to go to the violin. Sometimes you can hear a beautiful piece of violin music that sears your soul, but it's not being, it's not a fiddle. It's not being raced through, but it is something that you can connect to yeah. and that you yeah. know you're in good hands by the, by the artist. So kind of related to that, I have heard a number of people who, are, when they're talking about pacing, they will talk about the need for the story to breathe in the sense that there will be mm, periods, periods in a in a story which are really quite frenetic and frantic, but mm-hmm. actually you have to slow it down before mm-hmm. you speed it up again. So you almost get a kind of rhythm through a story. Is that something that you think is a good idea or is it? I do. Wired? Yeah. Is, I does, think, again, it all comes back to the musicality of it all, even just okay. when we spoke about humor, but musicality. Yeah. But the most important thing is the contract with the reader that you've established. You want to crook your finger and say, follow me, I have something to tell you and then don't lose their faith or their attention or their trust now that's interesting so i think that the kind of implicit contract that the writer has with the reader which is hard won and easily lost i suppose how what should we as writers be aware of and what should we be alert for in maintaining that that contract of trust i love your hard won and easily lost because i will say there in the opposite can also be true where you have an author who's written seven books and you go out to buy their eighth and it's a bit of a stinker but you allow it because you're like okay yeah. i yeah. try and you'll go buy their ninth but there's some authors that the first book you liked and the second one you did it you will never pick them up again because mm. it's too new it's too new of a relationship mm. um or you have the first book even if it's critically acclaimed and other people loved it and you it's not your cup of tea you won't, you'll put it down, you won't finish it, and you won't pick up their second. Yeah. So to me, they're, they're, the trust established, it's like any other relationship. You can, you know, seven years, seven books in seven years, and you've trusted this person to take you on the journey they promised, and you'll you'll be forgiving, a little yeah. bit more forgiving of the age. Sure. Sure. But I would say, you know, again, establishing a contract with the reader is not not cheating them on anything, not establishing a mystery and, and leaving it ambiguously unsolved yeah. or getting a storyline yeah. or creating something for a character to do that is against what you've taught us they will do just to try to intrigue us in the third act. Yeah. 
Now you've said, in fact, you've said character is key. So what would you say to writers about how they develop their characters? What are the good practices that writers should engage in to create those characters that will be key in a story? I love this question. And I think it's something I also approach a bit in the book, but I think if you know, here's just a little trick I oftentimes tell my authors, if you know 20 things about your character, let's take your protagonist, 20 things about your character that maybe never show up in the novel, yeah. but you know yourself and it could be um, they have an aversion to blue socks. They um, <laughs> once, they, they once killed a frog with a rock, like things that we don't, that we don't ever have to know, but that you yourself have made a list of that can sometimes come into play in order to make a much more three-dimensional character to stay attached with. Um, I also do some other writing exercises in the book where mm. it's making your, it's taking like a penultimate scene in your book and flipping it so that the antagonist is the protagonist. So we do it from their POV because nobody is the villain in their story, right? And every mm. novel who even the villain thinks they're the hero of their own story. So again, going for the three-dimensional aspect of it and the authenticity, especially, especially for writers approaching any characters who are from marginalized um, avenues. So what mm. we want to do is stay authentic, stay grounded and make sure we're being respectful and authentic and three-dimensional with our characters. Mm. You've raised that, the issue there of characters that are from marginalized backgrounds. And mm-hmm. um, obviously, so obviously I, I think at the, just at the moment in, in publishing, I think most readers, writers, everybody involved knows just how central the issue of the presentation of, diverse characters and marginalized characters is at the moment. It's it's a massive issue. So are there some little bits of advice that you can give writers who who really want to take that seriously and get it right? I, first of all, I would just congratulate anyone for taking it seriously and wanting to get it right. I think (laughs) it is, it is a long and it's been a long and difficult and still in the process of difficult journey to have representation across the board for different voices, different lenses of life. And I find myself in a, in a very unique and very humbling position in order to be like, listen to the conversation, Barbara. Maybe I'm not the one to answer this question. I'm the one to listen to the mm. conversations around me about this question. Mm. I think the most important thing that people can be doing is continuing to engage in conversations and continuing to make sure that whatever they are doing, it's coming from a place of authenticity and a place of well-researched, well-grounded conversations with anyone that they're thinking of representing as a character in their novel. Mm. And just just staying on that for a moment, I have yeah. I have heard um, some people say, and I think this is probably the extreme end of it, that um, a writer shouldn't stray outside of their own gender, their own race, their own sexuality. <laughs> did that they 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 cannot represent characters who are not like that in themselves. Now, I don't I don't personally don't agree with that, but I'm just wondering what where you stand on that and what what advice you would give in that sort of context? You know, it's interesting because I have, I have this amazing young adult novel called Ziggy Stardust to me by James Brandon. And it is about a young homosexual boy in, in the middle of America. And when I was shopping it, everyone had to kind of dance around the idea, but asking me flat out, like, is the author gay? And I thought it was so intriguing to me. Um, that that is part of the con- that was part of the conversation. It well, this is what the public, this is what prospective publishers was asking you. Yeah, it? they wanted to okay. make sure that it was from you know a a, a place a, a grounded place and representation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm happy to have these conversations all the time, 
However, I have seen cases, not my clients, but a colleague's client, where there was representation of a sexual assault in the book, and the author ended up having to come out and announce that, yes, they had been sexually assaulted, which to me, I flinched a bit on that. Like, at what yeah. point do we have to? Um, yeah. But I, I also, I will say the the sticky stuff and the and the ugly conversations we have to have are in the name of something so much bigger and so much grander. And we've got to fumble our way through it until we find that, until we find the right way to get other voices out there. We just mm. got to fumble around for mm. a while and it's going to be ugly mm. until it's beautiful. Mm. So it really is still a work in progress, this, isn't it? And it's always going to be. I mean, it's been a millennia of, of kind of a single lens, right? And so it's always going to be a work in progress. It's going to take a yeah. long time yeah. to really make sure that we're uplifting each other's voices. Okay. So another thing that um, you talked about in, in the book, um, I think there was a there's a there's a section in the book where you talk about finding and working with an agent. And what really struck me was that from a writer's point of view, we we writers get focused on that that single point in what you do, which is you take a writer on. We want to take you know, we want the we want the agent to take us on and then we want the agent to find a publisher. And that's kind of it. That's, but actually, you might have a relationship for five, 10, 20 years with, mm-hmm. with one of your writers. So mm-hmm. um, I wondered if there were things that you would want to say to writers beyond, th- 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 to encourage us to think beyond just, I just want you to take me on. You know, what else, what else, what does the relationship really look like? I'm sure there's more to it than that. Yeah, I, and I think it's really interesting too. On the, on, let me just shift the paradigm for everybody listening, sure. which is I, I work for you. Like, I know you want me to take you on, but I, I work for you in the end. Um, I'm here to facilitate your career. Um, we're on the same team. And also, yes, I've had, I've had clients that I've had for 13 years. I have about mm. five or six of them that are still working, still writing. And they've yeah. been mine since, you know, month one of joining the agency. And so it does, it is, uh, it is a shift and you use different parts of your skill set in order to continue, you know, when you're first going out with your first novel and you're, working hard to sell it in a place that with a publishing house or you're on books, you know, nine, 10 and 11, and we're getting upwards into, you know, very, very high monetary amounts and what that looks like. That's a whole gamut of, of a, of a lifespan, mm. an author mm. and an agent. And I mm. think as long as you both can flex and, and grow together and still are being very honest with each other, I would never want one of my clients just to be like, um, and we're done here without giving me the respect of the conversation. Of course, Same as yeah. I would say to them is I, yeah. I don't feel like I'm able to facilitate you in the way that you want to be right now. And it's time to go. And that, you know, it's unfortunate what happens and it's very, very painful for me too to um, break up with a client, which is I think a part that people don't think is, they don't put a lot of attention on, but it is not a light decision that I make. And it's a very painful one when it's happening mm. and after it's mm. happening. Mm. Um, and I have been, I've let clients go and I have been let go. I've been on both sides of it. Um, but it is, it is an, a singular relationship, uh, the agent and the, and the writer. And I am just so humbled and so privileged to be a part of it. Now, um, just switching tack a little bit now, then there's a section in your book when you talk about synopses, synopses mm-hmm. and, um, <laughs> how's it pronounced? Synopses. That's correct. Synopsies, isn't it? Yeah. We'll go with synopses. Well, okay. That's good. Whatever you say it's pronounced like I'm good with that. <laughs> Now you you kind of pose the question: What should a synopsis be? And you give this wonderfully practical, three layered answer to it. And I wondered if you could just very briefly tell us what those th- the three levels of synopsis are. Sure, I think you're referring to the log line, the elevator pitch. That's correct. The, That's the okay. one. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
So the log line is going to be something short and quippy, kind of what you see um, a movie referred to as. Uh, I always use Jaws. For me, it's just a very easy one, which is uh, the log line for that would be Great White Shark Terrorizes Small New England Town. So that would be the log line. That's just, yeah. okay, you yeah. get what that is. And then when we get on to what's called the elevator pitch, that stems, the phrase elevator pitch stems from you're in an elevator with someone and you have only a couple of floors to tell them what your book is about. But I believe it's good for any occasion. If you say, I'm a writer, people are going to say, oh, what's your book about? So you should be able to speak to it in a, in a mm. very quick and concise mm. manner. Mm. Um, and in that case, it's usually four or five lines of premise, not plot, where you say Great White Shark uh, attacks a small New England beach town over Fourth of July weekend. There is a reluctant mayor and a sheriff, and you just kind of go into it a little bit more, and you end something with where then they go out on the sea and realize they are no longer the top of the food chain or something, you know, something a little hooky, but yeah. we're doing very yeah, yeah. premisey, very surfacey, skip the zone across the surface so that people know kind of what they're dealing with and what the main players are. And then the final one would be what you would end up sending with your query letter if it's so requested from an agent, which would be a good page, page and a half synopsis mm, mm. of what happens in your book. Mm. Sometimes I will say, don't tell me what the ending is, because if I can figure it out before I get there, then I want to let you know that. And sometimes I'll be like, you need to tell me the ending because Sam really enjoying it, but there's a problem in the B section of the middle section of the book and the second act. But then I read ahead and you're like, and it turns out it was the brother. And then I'm like, Oh, that's <laughs> so good. Okay. Let's go back. We need to fix this. We need to make sure this, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. So sometimes I will request that I get the surprise ending if there is one. And sometimes I will say, don't tell me the ending. If, um, like if you, if somebody like you goes to writers conferences, I'm expecting that you probably almost like kind of shy lovers, writers scuttle up to you and <laughs> they want to tell you about their, their book. Um, <laughs> whether you want to hear it or not. Mm-hmm. I always and, want to hear it. Okay. So if you want to hear it, do you want to, is it the elevator pitch you want to hear? What, what do you want to hear? I want to hear the log line kind of, cause it'll be pretty quick to understand that that's not me. If they're like, um, they say something really high fantasy, uh, that's not going to be me. And sure, thinking that say, sure. I'm writing high fantasy. It's, you know, 135,000 words. It's about a world where, and then I'm like, it's probably not me. That's probably Miriam Chris on my agency. Yeah. But usually what will happen is someone will come up to me and start talking and I'll say, I love this idea. I love that you came to talk to me. However, I can't drive a car. I can't buy a car I haven't seen. So you need to query me because it's really hard to talk. I can, if you talk about your book, I can get an idea, but why just send me the query in the the pages, you know, to my queries mailbox. And then we have ourselves an actual exchange of ideas here. So you can tell me whether this is right or wrong. I'm thinking like if I was only vaguely aware of, of the kind of genres you manage and, uh-huh. and that you look after, I might come to you. I might give you my name, say, mm-hmm. say I've, I've written something, give you the log line or, mm-hmm. you know, 15 seconds of stuff and say, and then just say, would you be interested? Can I yeah. query you? Yeah. And then is that, is That's that what happens? Yeah, you'd be like, hey, I'm Andy. Uh, thank you so much for your, whatever I just did, panel or whatever I did. Or, yeah, yeah. oh, I read your book. I wanted to run by you really quick and say, I have a 95,000 words, kind of like a family dramedy that takes place over a holiday weekend. And I'm right now pitching this, I want this book, whatever this is. Um, you'll say, is this, and it's in the vein of kind of like a, a Nick Hornby, uh, would you be interested in that? And I'll say, yeah. And then I'll say, make sure that you send me a query to barbara.queries at irenegoodman.com. And then I'd say put in the subject line where we saw each other and then you'd send me the query in the 10 pages. But that it's going to be that fast. Because sure, sure. I'm, I'm delighted to talk to you. That's why I'm there. That's why I'm at a writer's conference, you know, to be part of your toolkit. 
And you're delighted to talk to me to find out if I'm interested. And if I'm not, it's good for us. And if I am, it's good for us. Like I would assume you don't want to talk to me for more than a minute, 90 seconds. I really. don't know. Maybe we hit it off. Well, Maybe we just lean against the yeah. wall and chat for a while. Yeah, which which is great. <laughs> I mean, but I'm if and I'm I'm not saying I just kind of babble it out and run away. But to it be fair to it does happen. I'm, does I'm happen. sure it. I'm sure it does. But to be fair to you, to be fair mm-hmm. to you, and given the fact that you are the literary agent at the conference, and there'll be a bunch mm-hmm. of people that want up, yeah. I'm thinking probably unless the agent says let's talk some more, I guess re- to, to be fair to you, to be fair to an agent. Is it a minute or two and then we're done? I mean, it's pretty natural. You can kind of detect the ebb and flow of the conversation. I would say there's been times there's this delightful woman I met at a conference. Her name's Sarah Anderson. We were at this time. We just started hitting off and chatting and every once in a while. And she told me the book she was writing, but then she told me what she did for a living. And I'm like, wait, why aren't you writing that book? We just (laughs) hit off. And every once in a while, she will just drop me an email and check in and say, I'm still working on this. We ended up having this a couple of common things that we just liked and we just hit yeah. it off chatting. And now okay. she drops me an email every once in a while to say, Hey, still working on my book. Hey, da, da, da. hope you had a great holiday or something. It's very casual. So yes. to me, yeah. I mean, there's, I don't really have, I'm not going to be like, and you have 30 seconds go. It's just going to be like, tell me, you know, ask me your questions. Tell me about your book. And there's definitely going to be a lot of other people standing around to do the same, but I'm here for, for you, unless I say, I am so sorry, I have to give a panel at 3.50 and it's 3.49, I have to run and do it. Yeah, or sure, if I say sure. I have an appointment or anything and I'm very, we're just, we're here chatting about books and that's what we should be doing. I don't, I don't have any problem chatting about or answering questions. That's why the conference has me there. Okay. That's fair enough. Now, one of the other things that you touched on when, when let's say I've met you at the conference, we've had a nice mm-hmm. chat. I'm going to, I'm now going to pitch my stuff. And there's an issue I think that writers struggle with, which is to get a happy medium between writing to you and declaring true love (laughs) at one end and writing to you and giving you the impression that you are agent 28 on a list of 54 agents that I'm writing. (laughs) And then I'm assuming there must be some kind of happy medium somewhere in there. Where, where might that be? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to be agent 28 on an agent, on an agent list of 50 that you're querying. In fact, you should be doing that. You should be getting your, your query letter out there. I always say between, I think 20 and 30 is appropriate. I'm happy to be one of those many that you're querying or many that you're talking to because you're out there. You're the only voice that your book has to interview for its job, right? You're the only voice. So I think getting out there to as many agents as possible is important. And I'm not offended by that. In fact, I encourage it. I'm okay. not one that takes, I, I don't take shine to, I want to give this to you on an exclusive submission. I'm usually like, why? Unless I specifically say, can I have this exclusively for the weekend? Sure, and we'll get sure. back to you Monday. Sure. So yeah. yeah, no. And I've also had really amazing experiences. For example, my New York Times bestselling author, Renee Ahdia, she came up to me at a conference and was like, you only hear no if you don't ask. So I want to ask, can I take you out for coffee after this session and pick your brain about the publishing industry? And I just cracked up. And I said, you know what? I love this approach. I love this. I'm actually at that time, I had a very one, one small child and a husband. And I was like, my husband and child are waiting for me downstairs. We're going to, this is in New York. Uh, we're going to grab lunch. Um, but I love this. And she handed me the physical query on the first 10 pages. So went and had lunch with my husband and child, went back up, finished a session. But when I got home that night to our apartment, I dropped the pages, the hard copy pages on my desk. A day and a half later, my husband was walking by. He just picked him up. He 
call me and was like, this one, you got, did you read this one? You got to read this one. And so she likes <laughs> to take credit for that too. My credit for my career, credit for Renee. Um, he also found another client of mine, another huge client of mine, uh, Lauren DeStefano in YA. And he takes credit for that too. But um, so in that case, the fact that she waited to talk to me, said something different and brought me the hard copy of her pages, that was just unique and it worked. I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. not saying everybody do that, but no, 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 I wasn't no. like, Stop. I wasn't like, ew, creeper, don't ask me for tea. And then I didn't take her pages and throw them in the garbage. I took them home and put them on my desk sure. to be read. Okay. So for me, you know, there's lots of ways to skin a stegosaurus and, and this is one of them. <laughs> what a great assistant you have in your husband. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm always, uh, as you were saying that, I'm thinking, mm, if I wanted to pitch to you, I might start by pitching to your husband almost. Yeah, you know, I just pitched to Travis, seriously. <laughs> so one of the other things I was uh, that you touched on, which I, I I hear a lot of fellow writers talking about, is there's a lot of us writers, we write something and it's a work of brilliance. We know it is. Um, but it doesn't fall easily into a into a recognisable genre. And I, I, you may have come across this that you probably have. How? What do you say to, to writers who maybe you're interested in doing some work with them, but this, this stuff just doesn't fit somehow? Well, first of all, I would say everybody thinks that they have written something wildly unique and doesn't yeah. fit into genres. But in order to be, move from being a writer to an author, learning industry speak and learning the common vernacular of the industry is very important. So yes. if you can give it a, it's like blank meets blank or some kind of comp title reference, um, especially yeah. we'd appreciate if the comp titles were in the last, you know, three to four years. And you can use movies, you can use film, you can use television series, but some way to frame your book so that we know that you are moving from writer to author to be able to speak within the industry, it's important. And so I will know, like, if we end up working together, I will have all kinds of comp titles that I'll be using and that I can help you in order to, you know, yes, refine how you sure. talk about your book. But just to start off, to know how to frame your book is really important, whether you're telling someone at a cocktail party what you're writing or whether you're talking to an agent. Okay. Now, there's a view amongst writers. I'm, I'm pretty sure this would be most writers, authors. And, and it wouldn't matter whether they're indie authors or commercially published, that the responsibility for getting out there and pitching themselves and pitching their work is squarely with them in, in the main. That Actually, no one's going to do it for them. Do you think, is that true? And and as a subsidiary question, what what should authors do to help themselves? Sure. Um, insofar as pitching and getting yourself out there, I can't speak to indie authors because I'm a I'm an agent who I worked with the publishing houses. Sure. But what I can say is I think what surprises my clients more often than not is how much they are in charge and are responsible for publicity and marketing. Whether yeah. that is yeah. and right now, what you can be doing, you can just do this in your pajamas. It's just sit down and make a list of resources that you already have to tap insofar as alumni mailings or um, places if you grew up in one place and went to university in another place, how do you have relationships with those communities? Would they put a small blurb or review in their local paper? Mm. Would they do a re an interview with you on their university you know, podcast? So you're just going to make a huge brainstorming list about all kinds of reaches that you have. And then you're also going to make a list of places that you could possibly go to speak to things that are akin to what's happening in your novel. For example, if you're writing a detective novel who's a and she's the horticulturist on the side, that's a great hook for reaching yeah. out for other um for your publicists to reach out to other types of horticulture periodicals and platforms and to say this this is what this book is about. Can we do some content? Can we do an excerpt? So anything that's going on in your novel that then can be used to spring forward into something else 
that's a good brainstorm as well. So you can always be thinking like that. So just to be clear on this, even even if let's say let's say you you took on an author tomorrow mm-hmm. and you were pretty sure you could get them a massive deal mm-hmm. and the publisher was going to put some real resource into it, yeah. you would still be encouraging your new client, your author mm-hmm. client, to mm-hmm. really you know put a shift in for themselves to actually do as much work for themselves as they can for their work. Yes, I've. I mean, I've run the gamut of all of it. I never sign anything and think, "Oh, this is the one I won't sell." I never sign anything and think, "Oh, no, this course. is the one I'll sell for a very small amount." And I never sign anything and think, "Oh, this is the one I'll sell for a huge amount, but they won't do any. They won't have any support for it." Those things all have happened, though. So what wow. I would say <laughs> is to make sure to make sure that you are approaching this as your business, meaning you are the CEO, and so publicity and marketing is going to be part of the color wheel that you bring to the table as the CEO. Now you might be put on a golden throne and, you know, greased up and sent out no problem without (laughs) lifting a finger, or you might have a pickaxe on one hand, you know, one shoulder and a shovel on the other, and you're out there doing the majority of the work yourself, but it doesn't hurt to just start thinking about what kind of reach you have and what you can be doing to help yourself. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing you can correct me here. Pretty much every publisher that you would sign a client with is going to be interested in what in what in what that author's networks are Correct. and what they can do to Correct. kind of get their shoulder to the wheel for this project as well. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, your book contains uh, some helpful exercises for writers, um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about those exercises and and what benefit we might gain from doing them. Sure. There's a couple of different ones in there without. Yeah boring everyone and going through, I can talk about some of my favorites. Um, again, I think I already referenced the idea of creating the scene where your antagonist is the protagonist, like you did, writing yes. in their POV, yeah. really, really important. But one of my favorite things, especially for getting started, and it could be getting started with your debut novel, it could be getting started with your sixth novel. But what I like to do is have 24, a 24 hour period, it's called 24 and 24. You take a 24 hour period that starts the moment that you write down the first one, but you're going to write a title and like a two or three line premise for a novel. And you're going to okay. do 24 of them in 24 hours. Wow. Now, when you do that, you probably have the first three already kind of half baked in the back of your brain. You think, yes. aha, yeah. I've got these couple ones already. And then four, five, and six are going to kind of be weird spinoffs. And we're going to get real, real odd around 10, 11, and 12. <laughs> and then step by 17, it's just, it's, it's Looney Tunes. It's not even making sense. But then all of a sudden by 20, you're kind of back in the groove of something. And then 24, you're exhausted and you're kind of angry at me. But then you send me the whole list and I go through it and I can tell what is going on with your brain. And I can tell, I'll be able to see what your muse is basically telling you to do. Yeah. Um, And sometimes it's pieces of number five, number seven, and number 20. Sometimes it's so obvious it's number 17. Um, but I'll usually ask the author then, hey, which ones did you feel really pulled to? They'll always say one of the first three because those are the ones that were easy for them that they already had percolating. But then they'll say something else like, I liked 11 and I'm really surprised. I don't know where that came from. And I'll be like, yeah, because it's 11. You're writing number 11. So it's a really <laughs> great exercise, but it really shakes you up. But you got to do it all in 24 hours. Okay. Now, so what would you say are the two or three bits of advice that practically every writer who's knocking on your door or the door of, of most agents what what is what is the advice that you would give to those writers number one not all of this is is horrifying 
but not all of it is lovely either to be prepared <laughs> to be prepared that this is a business like anything else it's called the publishing industry it's not called the publishing we're all puppies and kitties together it is it can chew you up and spit you out and it, it's not horrifying but it's not all lovely put your business cap on as much as you have yeah. your creative cap on yeah. number two is my most important one and all my clients could feel me saying it right now which is keep your eyes on your own paper there are so many publishing journeys alongside of you. There are so many stories to be told and people to tell them. But when you get into the, why don't I have this scenario or what, it, how come this person gets this and I didn't, yeah. it can be really difficult to shake the client back out and get back on their publishing path. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also your impression of what other people are getting or doing or having can sometimes be skewed or quite frankly, just flat out incorrect. So keeping your eyes on your own paper, literally and figuratively while on your publishing path is really important. And number three, I would say is what the basic tenet of my life and my book and my career is, is don't forget to have fun. Don't forget to have fun. There is a lot on the way to celebrate. There is a lot on the way to pause and say, well, I made it this far. Well, this yeah. happened. This yeah, is yeah. the goalpost. This is, and just to pause, take great big pauses and enjoy the fun parts. Cool. Okay. We've been talking about stuff that we've found in your book, which is mm -hmm. called Funny You Should Ask. Um, and now I wanted to kind of turn the table slightly on you and give you a sure. chance to pitch your book to us. So what's so special about your book? Why should we buy it? <laughs> well, let's see. If I was going to pitch my book, I would say Funny You Should Ask is like soaking your morning cornflakes in vodka and then attempting <laughs> to run a business. It is everything you wish you had in a love letter and a business card from a colleague and a friend. Wow. Soaking your cornflakes in vodka. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That is, that is such a striking image, isn't it? So how can we find your book? Where, where could we find it? It's on in all major retailers. You can find yep. it in any major retailer. Um, you can also go to the website, funnyyoushouldaskbook.com. Um, okay. and it should give you some links there, but it's on Amazon UK and all that. Um, sure. and then other than that, if you have anybody out there that feels like they're ready and they want to come take a rumble with me, you can find me with your query in your first 10 pages at barbara.queries at irenegoodman.com. Okay. And does your website also have a kind of submission guideline? So is it does. Like yes. Irenegoodman.com is my agency. Irene yeah. Goodman is my agency and irenegoodman.com will have the, the query guidelines and the submission sure. address on there as well. So it, so writer approaches agent 101 is read the mm -hmm. query guidelines and, and give you guys what you're asking for, I suppose. Yes, please. And you'll go on there and maybe if you think, oh, I'm not sure if Barb is the right one for me, but you'll see the other agents in my agency yeah. and say, oh, actually this yeah. fits better for me. So yeah. that that's a good reason to go. Whenever you meet an agent or hear an agent, to look at their agency website and kind of see what kind of books they're doing and what their colleagues are doing. And and so the website of your, the agency where you work again is IreneGoodman.com. IreneGoodman.com. Okay, that's great. Um, do you have any final comments for us eager writers before we finish? I don't. I mean, I just would circle back and say, just like with the book and in life, you know, learn a little, laugh a little, and um, <laughs> have fun. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Barbara. It's been great to talk to you. Uh, really enlightening. I shall I shall take vodka-soaked cornflakes, if nothing else, from, <laughs> from this thank conversation. You. Thank you very thank much, you Barbara. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.